I think that we all have a very specific purpose for why we're here. And if you were to ask me what I believe is the meaning of life, I think it's to discover what that reason is. And it can change and it can evolve and it can be different at different stages in our lives. But I personally feel that when we find out why we're here, that's when things get fun. So today on Afternoon Tea, I am so excited for episode 11, that's 11, hockey sticks if you will, uh, to have Olivia Wong uh, join us. Now, Olivia, let me just set this up if you please. Olivia Wong is a senior partner at Prototype Thinking Labs, a business design and innovation lab focused on solving new business models 10 times faster, that's 10x, using a unique approach born at Google X, we've got some X's in here now. Uh, Olivia trains companies to confidently run experiments and build new solutions with a fraction of the effort, cost and time. She has worked with hundreds of organizations to create new offerings that viscerally captivate customers with data-driven confidence and at the same time reducing months or years from development. Um, and she's worked with such great companies as MasterCard, Capital One, UNICEF, L'Oreal, Kaiser Permanente, Permanente, you know who I mean, Autodesk, and Lululemon. Um, she also teaches and mentors entrepreneurs at Singularity University, uh, Ventures, Draper University, and Mass Challenge. Previously, she served as huma as a humanitarian aid worker at Z uh, Zatari, and you might have to correct me on that. The did I get that right? Zatari or Zatari? You got it right. Okay, there we go. Um, the world's largest Syrian refugee camp and in Fukushima, Japan, after the nuclear disaster. Her nonprofit work has been recognized by the Clinton Foundation, the United Nations, and the U.S. State Department. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. And I apologize for giving you 30 minutes of cardio because having to go through that introduction was painstaking for you. But thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. And do you know what's funny is I looked at that and I thought, that's a lot. And I thought, where am I going to edit it? And I loved all of it. And I decided you can't edit this. This is this stuff is too important. It's It's too... Impressive. I mean, I've, I've I've been doing my homework. You know, you've you've left lived a very interesting life, and I've been doing my homework. And I got to say, with each you know new piece of information I'm discovering, and you know we'll be discussing, I just go, wow, what have I done? You know, um, I mean, we're seeing this stuff, especially I mean with, with with Syria, with with I mean all these places where you're making impact, and you know that's 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 incredible. But I did see a, a video today. Um, that you that you put on, and we're going to talk a little bit about the context of that video. But you say one thing that I think is really interesting, which is the most important days in your life are when you were born and when you find out why. Explain this to me, please. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's where we're going to go. We're just going to dive there. in. We're going to jump into the deep end. So let me talk a little bit about one of my favorite quotes, which you've just outlined. That quote to me really represents having an awakening. It's when you identify who you are and why you're here. And I think that everyone in the world has a reason why they were born. I, I genuinely believe this. I don't think that anyone was born as a mistake. I think that we all have a very specific purpose for why we're here. And if you were to ask me what I believe is the meaning of life, I think it's to discover what that reason is. And it can change and it can evolve and it can be different at different stages in our lives. But I personally feel that 
when we find out why we're here, that's when things get fun. Like that's really when you start playing the game. Before we're just sleepwalking through the existence of uh, of human life. But once you figure out why, then you're you're thinking, oh my goodness, like what can I do to maximize? What can I get to do to get to level 10 of this game? And it gets so fun. So that's where I am right now. I love that. I love that. So, so we met um, maybe a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, where you were speaking at a, I think it was a Facebook Circles event. I actually can't remember. I was trying to think about it this morning. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think you speak at too many events. We have we have too many great events, in this, and it was a great event at our office. And I remember that you had, I will call it a glow about you. And the information you were sharing made me go, holy crap. You're one of the few that get it. And, and what I mean by that, I just got to give you a little context, is the co-founder of, of, of TTT is, is Josephine, okay? And she's honestly, I love her like you won't believe, but I think she's one of the most talented human beings like that I've ever come across. And she talks like you and few people do. And, 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 and I got that. And I was just like, oh, I, I have to know more about you. I have to introduce you to Josephine because I think that, you know, you both will appreciate the... the what do I call it? Like the, that, that aha moment, the creation. And, you know, you live for that creation. Um, so I assume, you know, through a lot of things you do, discovery is a big part of it. Like the, the ideation, the understanding of what you're trying to build. Now, when you go to um, a company uh, or an organization and you're going to do a discovery session, like you're going to say, okay, this is, you know, what what is it that we're going to do all this? What's your first question? What's the first thing you want to know from a company in order to say, okay, give me the information to create this product or ideate it with you. But what's the first piece of information that you think is most important to know right off the bat? I would say the most important thing to know at the very beginning of any type of project is what's the problem? And I know that's so basic and it's so simple. And you're probably like, oh, Olivia, come on, give me something more meaty, give me something more juicy. But I will tell you so many times, I've worked with a lot of different companies and teams and they jump five steps ahead to creating a solution before they really understand what the problem is. Mm. I think this is even, it becomes more difficult when we have empathy for our user. So for example, if we are building a solution for ourselves, it's so much easier to have our box of assumptions and then immediately just run out of the gate and say, okay, well, I am the user. So I obviously know everything about what the user wants. Now that could be true if the person is you, but the majority of the world does not always think like you. And so I think one of the most important things to start with is being able to define very, very clearly the problem statement. And mm. this is so important because if you scope it too big and it's too broad, your solution will be a shot in the dark. If you scope it too narrow, your solution may be only workable for a finite group of people. So it's really important to come up with the right questions and the right grammar and language and architecture of that problem statement. Because essentially, the closer you are to the correct problem statement, the better chances your solution will be usable and valued and loved and cherished by the people that you're serving. I love that. Because, you know, you basically, I have... Um my first meeting deck where I'm explaining, hey, you know, for example, our company, I don't want to just talk about our company, but we are not a tech company like you think it is. We solve problems leveraging technology and we do it through understand, removing bias and understanding the user and, and remove everything that you think because you have to be questioning them. And my God, I'm just listening to you and I'm like, you, again, 
I think we're just in such simpatico. And I, I love that. I love that. Because it took me a long time, you know, through, through Josephine's tutelage to, to understand that. And, you know, you, you, you just get it. And that's, that's, that's fantastic. Well, um, let me think here. Um, so, you know what, you've engaged with Fortune 500 and smaller organizations. Um, what do you feel, or which, which of these do you feel need the most help when it comes to ideation? Or, or is it the same? I don't think the world needs help with ideation. I think as mm -hmm. humans, we're really good at coming up with ideas because we want to serve and we want to be impactful and we want to make people's lives better. So I don't think the problem is ever coming up with an idea. I think the problem is understanding what the idea is meant to do, which is an idea is just an idea. When I say that, I mean the majority of ideas in the world have a small percent chance of being the right idea. And the problem is that we get too attached to our ideas. One of my favorite quotes is by Tom Chi, one of the creators of the method that I teach. And he says, attachment is the enemy of innovation. So what we do is what we really try to focus on is not picking one idea that will be right or wrong. It's about trying a million different ideas and then taking the five or the 10% that works from each try and parlaying it to the next experiment. Because really what we're trying to do is we're maximizing our rate of learning. We want our learning to be a creative and compound over time, which means we have to try a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if we try a bunch of stuff and we throw a lot of stuff at the wall and we look at all of the different permutations and variations of that one initial idea, what we want to do is we want to be able to take that process and do it very quickly. So I really don't spend a lot of time in ideation. Even if you were to take a workshop with us or do a training with us, we sort of jump over ideation because we we don't really think it's that important. What's mm -hmm. more important is getting the data back from customers and then ideating off of that data. So we have a different technique and it's called ideating and iterating off of like th the data that comes back. Mm -hmm. which is really the, like the key of everything in innovation. For sure. And again, removing bias by doing so, you know, let the numbers, let the data, let the feedback mm -hmm. um, drive what the, you know, may, not the mission, but the product itself that you're trying to, you know, the problem you're solving. I, I totally love that. Now, one thing that I think is really neat, and I want to, I want to kind of design, I know you're not maybe a true designer, you're a product designer, but I, I can tell you've got design throughout your soul. One thing that we do that I think is really unique as well is that, when it comes to the very first stages, so, you know, we have our discovery sessions and then we start our design. Okay. And I mean, actual, you know, we, we take the, the information hierarchy and, and break that down. Now, one thing that we always do is we make sure the first steps are always done in paper and pencil. Okay. Never digitally ever, 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 because at that point, the, 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 the designer or the, is taking ownership of the problem. It's, it's, it's organic. It's natural. It, it's, 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 you know, it's effort. You feel it. And if, if, if you start just taking pieces of other people's work or past projects you did, because there's lots of similarities, you don't own it. Like, it, it's, it's just not wrong. Now, do you have any, like, special design, um, design um, strategies or, or any of these that you think makes it organic, makes, you know, brings ownership to a product for, for the stakeholders, for the team working on it, for any of these people? I love that so much. We teach the same thing. We are huge advocates of working in low fidelity mm -hmm. because we believe that when you're working with paper and post-its and sticky notes and all these things, you can actually move your ideas at the speed of thought. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're working in InDesign or software and you're coding, 
the, the, the speed at which those changes can be made is a lot slower. So I love that. I love working really fast. I love being scrappy. And then I also love the idea of working with low fidelity materials because it means you can have a great idea, crumple it in a ball and throw it in the corner and then try again and try a hundred different things in 10 minutes. So love that. I just I need to kind of arc on how much I'm like, yes, you get it, Chris. Oh, no, I just follow, I follow the, the wonderful Josephine and her team and, and you know, and Mark and all these wonderful people. So I, I'd love to take credit for it. I just, I just honestly, I bask in their, in their talents and, 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 and the beauty of creation. Um, you know, Olivia, I'm just gonna tell you, I have the greatest job in the world because I'm not talented when it comes to programming or design or anything like that but I get to surround myself by awesomely creative people. And, you know, like, like when you go into discovery session and you say, let's solve this through our workshops. And it's just like, it's a birthing, like it's so much fun. Um, well, let's talk about that. I mean, we, we've identified, I think there's like 29 different workshops we do based on whatever product we're trying to create. There's always the typical ones, you know, around the, uh, uh, the, the understanding the user, uh, user journeys, all of that. Is there any specific workshop that you just love? that you, you, you know has to be in every single uh, one of your um, sessions for uh, creating a product? Recruiting users. Recruiting, recruiting, recruiting users? users. This Love is that. where people fall down the hardest. It is the hardest for people to get over. It's where people get stuck. So if we look at a project, the majority of people get stuck at the moment where they have to find a real person who matches their user and their segmentation and get them into the room and get in front of them and show them what they've built. And I spend a lot of time with teams and early founders and business owners recruiting users because one, if you haven't been trained classically in the in user recruitment, it's awkward. You have to ask people, you have to use social currency, you have to persuade people to give up 30 minutes or an hour, especially if they're an important person too, if they're hard to find. This is even more challenging. If we don't have the resources to pay people and compensate them for their time, then we have to be more strategic and smart about how we make that ask. So I love teaching people how to go beyond Craigslist, how to go beyond hiring a third party recruiting firm, how to actually do the recruiting yourself, because there's something really powerful about you, you being the founder or the director or the person on the team that's leading the project and finding users and building that relationship because the relationship between you and your users is the only relationship that matters when you're a business, oh, right? It's the and only then, one. And yet we have such a hard time finding people to talk to that could be our potential customers. And, and you know what? I, I would even take that to, 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 to another stage of a lot of the time I have to convince entrepreneurs or stakeholders that you have to bring people in early. Don't think they're going to steal your idea. They, they, they're, they're doing their nine to five, trying to figure out what they're doing in life. They don't have time to steal your idea. You need their buy-in because you're probably wrong in what you think it is. Like you, you get the spirit, you get the soul, you get, you know, the direction of the mission, but you don't know how, what, what, what are they going to buy? And you have to really understand that. Well, I'm just, I, I knew I was going to nerd out with you here and I'm, I'm, I'm at like, I'm at like Nirvana 11 if that makes sense right now. Um, well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump to one thing that now I, I spoke to you. I, I sent you an email because one thing that I thought was, was really interesting about you, especially when we started doing, you know, homework in here. Cause again, we, we do do our homework. At least we try. Um, was that your, um, your mission with, with, with Miss America Global, um, you know, I said, hey, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a tech, um, you know, or entrepreneurial and, and you know, you fit that, 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 that side so well. Um, you know, I don't know if we want to talk about this um, because 
First off, congratulations, because you are crowned Miss America Global 2020, and we're, we're going we're to talk about this. Um, but you said, look, um, we, we, we should talk about this, because like great organizations like Wired Magazine, for example, have called this innovative. And, and, and so I read the article, um, and I was amazed how they didn't call it a pageant. They called it a cultural um, a cultural contest, which I loved. But can you tell me um, a little bit about your experience? Um, not only, you know, winning and being crowned, I, I assume it's being called crown, crowned, uh, the champion, um, but what was your experience in this contest? So I competed in a virtual pageant and I wish I could be Miss American Global because that sounds amazing. I'm Miss Asian Global, but I'll take both <laughs> titles if you want to give them to me. The virtual pageant happened in August this year, and it was such a fun competition because the things that we were being judged on was storytelling, video production, and being able to communicate our vision and our message for the world. So those are three qualities that I've been working on as an individual because I am a founder. And I think storytelling is one of the most important skills that a founder can have. You need to be able to get people on your ships and they need to commit a couple of years of their life to being on your ship and rowing in the same direction, even when you don't know where you're going. So the reason for me participating in the pageant was to actually develop some of those skills. I got really good at video production. I can do produce videos in-house now. I can mm-hmm. shoot on a gimbal. I never thought I could do that. I can edit in post-production. I can do the hair and make, you know, I became like the one-stop shop because I wanted to be able to develop this internal skill so we could scale it later. So that was really the motivation behind the pageant. And then I ended up winning. And mm-hmm. there's a really beautiful intersection between innovation and the concept of a beauty pageant and what it really means to be an innovate an innovator today. Because for me, I had a career. Now I wouldn't say it's fully established by any means. I still have a long way to go. I'm very young, but I have a career and I had a career before I started pageantry. This isn't the case for many people. A lot of young girls and women will use pageantry as a lily pad to jump off of and launch their careers afterwards because it gives them the publicity. And for many women around the world, especially in developing countries, a pageant can be your make or break. It could launch you to success. It could take you out of poverty. It could let you leave your small town and be able to come back and have pride for your nation or your country. So for me, this was really interesting. There's this corporate consultant who's 29 entering a beauty pageant competing against 17 and 24 year olds. Like, why did I do this? Well, Mm -hmm. I think that innovation is about reinvention. I don't necessarily think anything is just fully disruptive, fully new. I think we're always, always, always reinventing what we have. And so for me, I think about my life and my career in that pattern. How do I reinvent myself in three years? How do I reinvent myself in 90 days? What is the next noun I want associated to my name? So I've been a lot of things. I've been a nonprofit leader. I've been a philanthropist. I've been a humanitarian. I've been a model. I've been a makeup artist. I've been a corporate consultant. You know, the list goes on and now I'm a pageant queen. So this is really the trajectory of me experimenting with myself and prototyping my identity in the world. Oh, I love that. Um, now, I, again, looked into this and that Wired Magazine really opened up my mind, I got to say, because they did it in a way that was so open. You know, it's not, you know, it's not what you think. And one thing that it talked about, too, and, and now my, my wife's Korean and I live in the in, in the Asian world. There really is 
certain priorities and some things that we don't have as deep of in, in I, I wouldn't say we, I, I don't want to say that. It's just those who don't like really live in the Asian world. And I don't want to be getting into any weird cultural, you know, barriers. I'm going to steer it as carefully as possible by, by talking about my, 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 my experiences with it. But every one of my wife's friends and their kids uh, on, that are on the Asian side, you know, be it from Singapore or Korea or any of these places, they're very, um, forced is maybe a good way of putting it to do music, to do math, to do all of these things that, you know, my kids think, Oh, I don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, I'm like, you become an amazing human being because of all of these things. And you, people can't compete with, with, with you. If you have ex at least even just a base understanding of all these things. And what I read about, about that specific, you know, culture pageant is that it really honors these things. Like, you know, you're good at music, great. You're good at math and all of these things. We want you to show off. And I was just thinking that everyone who's watching this, their mother, like my wife would be this way, it's for them just as much. And it's for the, all of the hard work that they put through. Now, did your parents make you do all of those things where you had to do the extra, the math or the the, the singing or any of those things? No. So you're, 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 you're on the line. Well, you grew up, you grew up, Okay, well, don't touch on that. Touch on that, because I'm always intrigued by by who does and who doesn't in this case. I'm the antithesis of an Asian mm -hmm. child. I grew mm -hmm. up without a tiger parent, which, if you're not <laughs> familiar with that concept, it's a per it's a parent who helicopters, who mm -hmm. is very aggressive about making sure their child does all the extracurriculars, is in the APs, goes to Stanford, Harvard, MIT, you know, is mm -hmm. enrolled in that track. Will probably be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in San Francisco. My parents were very relaxed. They just wanted mm -hmm. me to be happy, and they were like do whatever you want to do. I recently shot a video with someone who specifically focuses on mental health for the Asian mm -hmm. community. And we had this kind of laugh on the internet about how when I was in school, I got a C once. And mm -hmm. for any Asian child, they will understand that is like suicide. That's personal suicide. You just don't want to do that. It tarnishes your track record. It's going to, you know, uh, bar you from entry to greater careers and success later on. But I got the C and I was so angry and my mom was okay with it. And mm. her nonchalant response to me infuriated me. <laughs> I'm just like, you should be angry. <laughs> I was like screaming at her. I'm like, no way. Like, why is my mom taking this so lightly? And I think it's because I talk about this a lot, you know, right now because it's Mental Health Awareness Month, mm. that for many Asians, we grow up with a deep sense of obligation and duty to our parents. We need to take care of them. We need to provide for them. It's something that was passed down for from us, for us, from Confucian himself mm -hmm. some years yeah. ago. And that is embedded into our DNA. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of Asian Canadians and Asian Americans striving so hard at a very, mm -hmm. very young age. Yeah. Well, you know, I... I, I applaud, you know, I'm going to say, um, because again, I, I, I mean, it's, it seems weird coming from me and I, I really want to be cautious about, about no, that, no, I, you're so... I, witnessed, I witnessed it so much with my wife and her friends and all that and the importance of it. But I would say, you know, one thing that I haven't seen as much, but I see in you is the creative side. And I think what you just touched on about how your parents just let you be. And, you know, I heard videos or watched the videos that you, you shared and you're talking about your parents. You're talking about your father. You're talking about, so would you say that your creativity comes from that side of letting them say, just be, just be the best person you can be? Or, or where, where does your creativity come from? I was in this monastery a couple of years ago and there's, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I just have to come child back to this lesson that I learned specifically from this body of knowledge. It's called Vedanta. And one of my teachers told me that everyone is born with Vasana. Vasana is the scripture. It's the word for your personality. It's sort of like the essence of who you are. And I would even say, Chris, like maybe when you were two or three years old, like your parents knew you were going to be like this. Like they knew your personality. It was coming out. You were attracted to certain toys. You love to do certain things on the playground. You, you know, you really embodied the essence of who you are at a young age. And I was always that person. Mm -hmm. I think what helped me was that that natural vasana was never suppressed. So Mm -hmm. I was never stomped. I was never closed off. I was never put in a box. And even when I was, I pushed back so hard that I just destroyed the box. (laughs) (laughs) I I was definitely a rebel and people called me bossy all the time when I was young. Mm -hmm all the time my parents that's a compliment that's yeah a compliment. of course you yeah know? I, t- I tell my daughter go for that all the time you know because <laughs> it just means that you know what you want you know mm-hmm. or at least you're going to direct it more than more than others will so well that's great well, you know I saw, again i saw that i saw that in the video that you had for the for the for the for the um uh, for the pageant um it looked like was that where we're talking about the, Vos- the, the the temple was that the one just it's in mumbai on an island um because I've been, I was there about a year and a half ago where they have, it looks like Indiana Jones too. I'm, I'm aging myself here. Uh, but, you know, where they've got all of the, 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 is it the Hindu gods carved into the, into the, the cave and you get to go in. Now, did you, did you go there or was that, maybe I'm not describing it very well. No, I, I know what you're talking about. Definitely. That mm-hmm. visual is very, it's memorable, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I've been to a couple of different temples. The monastery that mm-hmm. I was particularly talking about is actually in, it's in, it's not in Mumbai. It's in the suburbs. I don't okay. remember where it's in India and you have yeah. to take a taxi cab for a couple of hours and a couple of trains mm. to get there. But yeah, that's where I was for a few days. It's, it's an adventure. I, the, the reason why I ask is because I have never seen more aggressive monkeys and I've, I've traveled, <laughs> I've been, I've been to about 120 countries and I have never seen more aggressive monkeys than in that spot. And the thing that amazed me is they kept trying to grab my water bottle. And, you know, I had, I had, it's 40 degrees, it's India. And, you know, I got the kids with me and they're, they're kind of scared of the monkey and the monkey, I just put the water bottle down and the monkey just twisted the water bottle cap off and started drinking. I'm like, okay, that thing's evolved. You know, that thing's beyond whatever, whatever spiritual cave this is, because again, it's a spiritual place. The monkeys have taken it to the next level. I got to learn from the monkeys. Um, okay. I totally digress with this. We're going, we're going in a weird tangent. I mean, the last, the last chat I had uh, with Kyle, we talked a lot about lifeguarding. Okay. This is, this is just going to be where it's, where it's going to go. Well, I want to touch on, so you, you grew up in the States. You went to um, uh, University of California, was it? Right. UC Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara. Okay. Uh, that's not the fighting banana slugs. Oh no, that's Santa Cruz fighting banana slugs. Pardon me. Very close. Very close. Yeah. 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 Um, But tell me, why do you live in Vancouver now? I fell in love. So mm-hmm. I wish that, you know, that that's a good enough reason for anyone. So it, I fell in love. <laughs> My partner lives here. I mm-hmm. We dated long distance and then I moved up eventually f- almost four years ago. Actually, I moved here four years ago, two weeks after Trump was elected in the United States. So it has been one full presidential term. Mm-hmm. Congratulations for that. Mm-hmm. So does that mean you're moving back soon? I'm, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed maybe, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. No, <laughs> no. I, 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 I'm I, pledging allegiance to the Canucks. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've, I, if, if it's the same fellow that I met when I was at the office, 
that guy's awesome. You know what? Keep him because he's great. I, <laughs> Isn't I, he? I, you know, yeah, we had a great time, Chad. We were just making fun of people and all that, but in a, in a great way. <laughs> That's no, I, totally you know, him. He, he, yeah, he and I hit it off. Like honestly, I can see why you'd move up here. Okay, so so I'm well. What 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 defines the big difference between San Francisco and Vancouver? Besides the rain, things are better here. <laughs> all, really? my, all my American friends are probably scoffing at me now, but to be fully transparent, I love Vancouver. I think this is one of the most beautiful places to live in the world. And you've probably heard that a million times, but here's the thing about Vancouver. You can live a life that is in more harmony with nature than you can in California. Because in California, people are really driven by career, success, money. I mean, that's also true as well um, in British Columbia, but it's to another level where people mm. sacrifice a lot of their relationships and their health and well-being and their families to be able to hit a career milestone. So I think back in California, which I, I obviously love, I'm, I'm born there, I've lived there for my entire life, I just sense that there's a lot of distraction. And when I'm here, I really get to focus on what I want to create with my life. So I love it. I love that we have seasons. We don't have seasons in California. <laughs> That's probably why I want to stay is the seasons. No, I, I, I dig. So are you, are you, are you into the skiing and all that then? I, I love the snow. I think it's so fun. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who for the first day I'm like snow. And then the next week it's like, ah, and then afterwards I, I kind of gather my things and I'm like, okay, let's do this. We're going to be oh. here for three months. Let's enjoy this now. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, you know, what's, what's funny. I was so at, at UBC, I, I went to UBC and mm -hmm. I was the president of the UBC ski club. Okay. Ooh. But I hate snow and I can't ski. So um, it was just, it was the, it was a fun club. It just seemed the right thing. So people are constantly asking me, are you a good skier? I'm like, nah. You know what? I, I, I said that I'd just sit in the hot tub with everyone's friends and make sure that they were kept company while, while you're off skiing. So that, that's, that's what I pledge. Um, well, you know what? Let's, let's talk a little bit about, let me, let me, let me hear about your experience in Syria. Can you, can you, can you set that up for me, please? Sure. So, one of my friends who I had met through the Clinton Global Initiative called me one day when I was in university and he was like, hey, here's the situation. It's winter. There's 80,000 people who live in this camp and I'm working here and every single day I see there's sleet and snow and water and floods and people are living in tents. And he was just explaining sort of the situation and what it looked like on the ground. And he was like, would you be interested in doing something with me? And I was like, yeah, let's do something. Let's make, run a fundraiser. We'll, we'll get the money out there to buy some prefabricated housing units. Wow. And that's what we did. So my 23rd birthday, I threw a birthday party and I raised some money and paired up with the Arab Student Union on campus. And we raised about $12,000 and we bought two homes. These Amazing. are prefabricated units. So they look like the white buildings on construction sites, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the foreman's are, are in. So we, so I went over there, I flew over, landed in Jordan, stayed in Amman, and then mm -hmm. drove to Zatri, which is at the border of Syria and Jordan every day for the time that we were there. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the most pivotal experiences of my life. I think it really shaped me as a human being. And I had done other humanitarian work previous to that and after that. But I think this trip specifically really taught me about the human mind. Because mm. when we live in Vancouver, it's a very peaceful place, oh, right? Yeah. It's so nice. Like We get to go to our favorite restaurants. We get to go to the beach with our friends and our family. It's a beautiful lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, when I was in the refugee camp, 
my entire body was flooded with fear. Mm. Do you know when you are really stressed out at work and the frontal, your prefrontal cortex is like firing and you feel mm. like someone is attacking you and you can't sleep and it's just a mess because mm. you're hardwired and you're, we don't, we are not hardwired to feel fear that it's not mm. our natural state. So it, it really increases our cortisol. Well, when I was in the camp, that is all I could feel. It was like mm. a perpetual state of fear because we didn't know what was happening. And I think for me, that really changed my life because every interaction after that experience, I was thinking about, am I leading from a place of fear? Am I spreading fear through my words? Because when there is fear, we can create division. Mm. And when there is division, there is suffering. And so all of my actions now, I try to trace back, like, am I leading from a place of love, which can create unity and connection and abundance and joy? And that's what I try to do in my work. I mean, this is a really far stretch, but even in innovation, I don't like to come to companies and say, you're going to be disrupted and your industry is going to be dis dismantled. And if you don't change now, you're going to be the dinosaur that is Blockbuster and Fujifilm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't like to tell that story because one, people already hear it a lot and it's boring. Like we don't want to be shamed or mongered into uh, having to be, to be different. But mm -hmm. how can we show people through excitement and love and curiosity and joy and expansion that innovation is here to help us that we mm. can change with it and it doesn't have to be this rocky transition it doesn't have to be something that is painful for us like innovation can be fun and easy and joyful so that's really where i come from and a lot of that was because i was so exposed to the environment on the ground in the refugee camp that's amazing. No, would you say, because, I mean, you clearly have a creative soul and I think empathy comes with a creative soul. Do you think you felt that fear? You, you were, you were basically just like a, a sponge absorbing it from all of those poor, you know, individuals who you're trying to create impact for. Do you, would, would you say that, that, that soul then can be a curse just as much as it is a blessing? Oh, you're just telling me my life story. <laughs> Being very empathetic. Everyone always gives me credit and you know acknowledgement oh that's so great you're so empathetic we need more of that i'm like yes we do but there's a dark side to everything and there's a shadow side to being empathetic and that's you can i can become so paralyzed from feeling the emotions of others or situations that i can't take care of myself anymore mm. it can easily spiral into depression it can easily mm. spiral into feeling that a paralysis and not being able to do anything so it takes a lot of discipline and self-care to not take on the psychological stress of other people. Like I, I have different exercises that I do, but I, one of them is like I visually cut cords in my mind. I'm like, oh, yeah, all of these 10 people that have been asking me for help. I'm like, goodbye. <laughs> I just push them away for today so that I can reset and be grounded and start afresh. I, you know, again, I mean, I keep saying I love that because honestly, everything you say, I, I love it. I mean, I'm living it. I'm, when, when I, I I don't do stress so much. I know I know people people do. I, I kind of have a fun carry on, you know, sort of lifestyle. One might say, but if I didn't have the amazing Mrs. Hobbs in my life, this Aww. would be my wife, just someone that I that I can talk to. Honestly, I think that that's what mental like. I mean, I don't want to say you know every mental um, stress or concern is 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 colored in the same in the same way. It's not. But I feel that if you have someone that you can trust. And someone that you can speak your heart to, um, 
you can get through these turbulent times. And I think it's really important to find that person in your life, be it your friend, your parent, your dog, you know, any, anyone like that. And, and again, I just love what you're saying because it's, it's just, it's, it's like a reflection of, of how, you know, we, we try to do things. So your, your spirit encapsulates me, I must say. Um, Well, you know what? I, okay. We talked about Syria, um, you know, scary place that, you know, you're trying to make an improvement in Fukushima. Totally different game. Can you set that up for me? Tell me a little bit about that experience. I was taking an exam in Japanese because I had studied Japanese my entire life. And this was in university. I was taking this exam. And then I remember going out into the hallway of my university and seeing these televisions go off. My Every every teacher in the hallway was standing at the doorway watching the television. I was like, what's mm-hmm. happening? So I walked over and I could see this giant tsunami just crash over an entire population, buildings, towns, people being swept away, cars, and reading 9.0 earthquake on the television. So this was immediately after the Tohoku earthquake, which was a 9.0 earthquake. Over 15,000 people died. There are still thousands and thousands of people missing. And around the same time, what happened is um, there was a nuclear disaster at the Daiichi power plant. And I was actually planning to go to Japan anyways for a study abroad trip. A lot of people decided not to go because of what had happened, because now Mm -hmm. there's nuclear radiation around Tokyo. But I thought, you know what? I would love to go there and do some research on the ground and see what the story is and help in any way that I can. So I did. And I went over, that was in 2011, and I was one of the very first people to help translate and produce content in English because a lot of what was happening was only in Japanese. Mm. And there's a huge language barrier, just a huge mm. language barrier when it comes to reporting and news getting outside of Japan. So I worked in Fukushima. I volunteered on a task force that was for emergency disaster. I helped to narrate a documentary about what was wow. happening on the ground. And to this day, I still don't tell people a lot of stories because, you know, this never comes up in conversation. So thank you for asking me this. But <laughs> I mean, there were situations, the situation was, if not worse, just as bad as Chernobyl. Mm. So you can, if you know Chernobyl's history, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, really devastating what happened to Very people. Very much so. Yeah. Very much. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll touch on that because my next question is around this. So I actually have my degree in Russian history and language. So <laughs> yes, I, I know a little bit about Chernobyl, but you studied political science at UC Santa Barbara. How does having a political science background help you in your day to day? Well, in what in what you do it when you what you do with 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 the uh, with the companies you work with? I don't know if there is a lot of value from that degree in the work that I do, to be blankly, like completely transparent and direct. But mm-hmm. I will say that having a degree was very valuable and I learned how to think for myself, which was very that, important. That, that's because I get people making fun of me for my degrees. OK, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Do you know what it taught me? It taught me to think properly and to think, how do I take this content and primary documents, secondary documents, Mm -hmm. how do you differentiate it? So you can cast the BS aside and understand, you know, especially when it's a data-driven world, what's the real data and don't pollute it with other people's information. You know, I want to know, I want to, I want to come up with my own algorithms to really understand and interpret the data. And I think a university degree, well, maybe, you know, it's not on the art side. It's not as, as, as helpful in a lot of ways, 
But I think the relationships you create and the way you communicate and um, educate yourself, it's so important. It's so important, you know. And you can tell people, hey, yeah, you know that, you know, Japanese, Russian, I don't get to speak it so often, I got to admit, but I get to enjoy, you know, talking about literature and all these things that 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 surprise people that, you know, I, I even got to read and got to experience. So uh, I wouldn't trade that experience out for anything, you know. Um, well, Olivia, thank you, first off, for being, you know, the creative energy and spirit that you are. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you today and, and hearing about all the uh, all the great things you've done and the great and, and, and I look forward to the great things you're going to be doing. And I, and I know that, uh, you know, the, the listeners here, uh, they're, they're going to follow you, too. So th thank you so much. And, um, you know, keep keep doing the great stuff you do. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure to be here today. And I can't wait to see where the podcast goes and to follow every episode. Hey, Afternoon Tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode. And that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever the heck you get podcasts from. Afternoon Tea is a new podcast focusing on the business of technology in Canada. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts on who we should be speaking with too. If you'd like to email us, please do so at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that's three T's, dot studio, S-T-U-D-I-O. You'll notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us on social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.